So throughout the summer, we're looking at the stories of Elijah and Elisha from the books of First and Second Kings in a series we're calling The God Who Lives. And it's helping us ask a question about what does it mean to live with faith and have faith in a faithless world, to live like God is alive and active in a culture that doesn't live like that is so. The story we're going to look at today is different from the stories we've looked at the last few weeks. First of all, because it's short. It's only three verses long. The rest of them have been ginormous. Uh, It's also different in that it's pretty fitting for the 4th of July, a day when we're going to go out from here to backyard barbecues of one form or another. I doubt any of you are going to be eating boiled oxen. Is that on the menu anywhere? I'm sure you'll be eating roast meat of some sort, Um, roast Boiled oxen will show up in our story this morning. This, though, is a story about what it means to respond to the call of the living God. So as we think about that together, uh, let's pray, and then we'll turn to Scripture and hear the story. Lord, it's in your light that we see light. It's in your truth that we find freedom, and in your way that we find peace. So come, O Lord, and shine upon us, that seeing you, we might follow after. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Do whatever you need to do to listen well to these words from the book we love. So Elijah departed from there and found Elisha, Shaphat's son. He was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen before him. Elisha was with the 12th yoke. Elijah met up with him and threw his coat on him. And Elisha immediately left the oxen and ran after Elijah. Let me kiss my father and my mother, he said, and then I will follow you. And Elijah replied, go, I'm not holding you back. So Elisha turned back from following Elijah, took the pair of oxen, and slaughtered them. Then with the equipment from the oxen, Elisha boiled the meat gave it to the people, and they ate. And then he got up, followed Elijah, and served him. The word of the Lord. Amen. So it's a short story, but a short story with some strange details. Like this one. What's the deal with the coat? Right? If you were here last week, you heard the story, Elijah fled to Mount Horeb. There he found that one of his tasks was to go and anoint Elisha, Shaphat's son from Abel-Meholah, as his successor as prophet. And so now he goes out and finds Elisha. He finds him plowing in the fields, and Elijah walks up, takes off his coat, and just throws it on him. And then because Elisha has to run after him, apparently he just walked away. So what's the deal with all this? The coat in some older translations, the mantle is symbolic of Elijah's role as prophet. It's like a uniform or a jersey. It's a visible marker of his position, his office, his calling as prophet, that he is God's witness in the world. And he takes it off and he throws it on Elisha as a sign that he now is being called into that role himself. 
Elijah is enacting God's call upon Elisha to come and follow, to become a prophet of God, to take Elijah's place as witness to the living God. But there's a little more going on. We're going to look at a story in a few weeks from 2 Kings 2 where Elijah is is carried up in a chariot up into heaven itself. And there his coat, this mantle, is left behind. And so Elisha, who's been with him, goes and picks it up and puts it on. Now to get there, they had had to cross over a river and Elijah had taken off that coat, rolled it up, struck the water, and it parted so they could walk on dry ground. It was a a callback to Moses. And Elisha had asked, had prayed for a double portion of Elijah's spirit, that the same spirit that had let Elijah do all that Elijah did would be upon him doubly so. And so as he comes back to that river, he rolls up the same coat and strikes the water. And what do you know? The waters part, and he crosses on dry ground. Because the Spirit of God, the same Spirit that empowered Elijah, was going to empower Elisha's ministry now too. Throwing this coat onto Elisha isn't just about his calling to be a prophet, but it's about the presence of the Holy Spirit upon him to empower his witness. God is calling Elisha to come and follow and empowering him with the Holy Spirit to carry on Elijah's work, God's work in the world. He is clothed in the spirit. As we said last week, God's not done. Things didn't look like they were going well, but God is not on the ropes. God's plan is moving forward just fine. Elisha will take Elijah's place and continue the work. God's spirit will continue to be at work in the world, and the next generation will not be left without a witness. And neither will the next, and neither will the next, and neither will the next. If you keep reading these stories, there's always another prophet that God raises up for each generation. A small company, surely, but they stand and bear witness to the living God for each generation. And God continued that work generation after generation until a prophet greater than Elijah or Elisha would arrive on the scene. A prophet who would not just witness to the living God, but is the living God living in the flesh. A prophet who would give himself to us as new clothes, that we might take off the clothes of sin and clothe ourselves in Christ, a prophet who would give the Spirit not just to dwell upon us, but to dwell within our hearts, and not just a select few prophets, but upon all the people of God. For God has not left this generation without witnesses either. All of us now are given the same calling And given the same power in the Spirit, we are given the mantle of Elijah too and called to live now as witnesses to the living God in the world. This coat, this strange detail in a little story, is not just a coat. It's the call of God to live as a witness and the power of the Spirit to do so. There's another strange detail, though. It's that uh, oxen barbecue mentioned earlier. Elijah throws his coat on Elisha. Elisha leaves the oxen and everything, goes over to Elijah, asks permission to say goodbye to his father and mother, and then turns back, slaughters two oxen, and with the plow and the yoke and the other equipment starts a fire to boil the meat and give it to the people, and then he leaves following Elijah as a servant. 
What's all that about? Well, one detail that's eminently clear in this story is that Elisha is super rich. He has 12 teams of oxen in a day when the normal person might have one. I don't know what the exact exchange rate is, but we'll say an oxen's equal to like a minivan. So he's got 24 of them. And the servants or slaves to drive the other 11. And because he's in the 12th one in the back, that means he's in charge of this whole operation, watching it all happen. So this is a man with quite a team underneath him. And we know that he's from Abel Meholah, a region that's quite fertile. He and his family inherited good land that would continue to provide bountifully for them. Elisha is a man of great wealth, a master over a large and lucrative operation, an owner of lush and fertile land. And what we see in these three short verses is that he gives all of it up because Elijah throws a coat on him. That instead of wealth, he chooses poverty. Instead of being a master, he chooses to be a servant. Instead of being planted in good and fertile land, he chooses to be an itinerant prophet. He goes to follow Elijah, who is running around at God's beck and call, surviving on food from ravens and widows. He seemed to have everything everyone is running around trying to get, and he leaves it all behind. Why? God calls. The living God places a call upon his life. And he leaves everything behind because of it. And then he kills these oxen and burns the plow as a symbol in one sense that he is leaving his old life behind. He's stepping into a whole new existence created by that call of God. Like Cortez who scuttled the ships when he landed in Mexico or countless other generals who burned boats or bridges behind them so that they would come to a point of no return. There's no turning back. There's no other option than to go forward and for Elisha to follow God no matter what came. And here there's an interesting connection to last week. Last week, one of the things we talked about was the mystery of faith. Faith is a gift from God. It's a mystery to us. It's not our own doing or working. It's not our intelligence or wisdom. We don't know why some believe and others don't, but miracles don't seem to have much play in it. It has to do with God's will. But to just say that could cause a misunderstanding. Because that doesn't mean that you have no role to play in faith. It's not something that's simply outside your power or control or influence. To say faith is gift may lead some to despair over their lack of faith because now there's nothing to do. Maybe we want to believe, but just don't seem able to. We want to know God and follow, but it just doesn't seem to happen for us. Faith doesn't seem to be there. So you resign yourself to it, because there's nothing you can do anyway. It's mystery. It's gift. So just give up and sit back and wait. Maybe God will do something. Maybe one day you'll have the faith you desire. Well, that would be a mistake. Because the people of God have always held faith together with something that seems so opposite. Obedience. 
For the Jews, it was Haggadah and Halakah, to pray and to walk, always held together. For Christians, it's Paul and James. Paul, who wants to make sure we understand we're saved by faith, not by works. And James, who reminds us that faith without works is dead. One of the most helpful articulations of this that I found was from Dietrich Bonhoeffer in a, a simple book he wrote called Discipleship. In it, he said that Christians need to hold together two necessary phrases. Now, on the one hand, the, the first is this, only the believer obeys. That one makes sense, right? Only the believer obeys. If you believe in Jesus, of course, you'll obey, you'll follow. Only the believer obeys. But to stop there would be a grave mistake. Because you might think, well, I don't believe enough, so I can't follow. So I can't obey. So he says, on the other side, we need to hold that together with another phrase, a little trickier. Only the obedient believe. Only the believer obeys, and only the obedient believe. Think about the call of the disciples. Jesus shows up and says, come and follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. And they leave their nets and their boats behind and they step out and follow. Levi, the tax collector, leaves his tax booth to go and follow Jesus. There's a step of obedience that comes with believing. Peter, when he's invited, steps out of the boat onto the water in order to believe that Christ can hold him. The rich young ruler's called to go sell all that he has, give it to the poor, and then come and follow Jesus. And even though he doesn't respond to that invitation but walks away sad, the invitation to faith is an invitation to obey. The invitation is to take a step, is to step out in order that faith might be possible. And you can't believe without taking that first step without being obedient. Only the obedient believe. Now, it's not that obedience that forms faith. It's not that obedience that saves you. But without taking a step, you're not in a place where faith is possible. And that's what we see Elisha doing. He steps out into faith, into discipleship, into this call to be a prophet, a witness to God, and he must step out of his former life he burns the plow, the boats behind him. He removes every obstacle or distraction and takes that first step to follow in God's call. If you want to believe, if you desire God but feel outside of it, then you should certainly pray, like we said last week, that God would grow faith in your heart. But also consider whether or not there might be a step that you're avoiding taking? What oxen might you need to slaughter? Only the obedient believe, because you can't follow Jesus on your own terms. We don't get to hold back parts of our lives for ourselves. We don't get to set the priorities, the conditions, the rules, because then we're not following Jesus, we're following ourselves, which means we're not answering his call, and we don't believe. You might think, I don't have enough faith to do the things Jesus is saying, is calling me to. And that might be so. 
But you'll never have that faith if you don't do the things Jesus is calling you to. The living God is calling. The Christ, the Lord, invites you to come and follow him. And he wants all of you. He wants single-minded devotion. He's not interested in being one among several other loyalties. He wants you to slaughter the oxen, to burn the plow, to leave everything else behind for the sake of following him. He wants you to leave the nets, to step out of the boat and onto the water, to believe in obeying and obey in believing, to answer the call and step out into the adventure of faith. Elisha's life from here on out is a remarkable adventure. And the stories he lives are remarkable because he lives with the living God. And a life of faith and obedience is anything but boring. The coat is the call and the power of the Holy Spirit we too receive to be witnesses of God. And the barbecued oxen is the step out in obedience to make faith possible as we join in the adventure of God. But as we come to the table this morning, there's one other thing that I want you to see. And that's that this barbecue is no ordinary one. Maybe you noticed that it sounded a little familiar, that it resembled one of the four sacrifices Israel is instructed to make as part of their worship of the living God. It's the fourth sacrifice, the shalomim offering from the root shalom, sometimes called peace offering or sacrifice of well-being. In that sacrifice, the fatty portions are put onto the altar and burned. They're given to God. But the rest is cooked and eaten by the priest and the offerer and all their invited guests. It's the only sacrifice that the offerer gets to eat part of what's offered, the only one in the Old Testament. And there's a number of times when these sacrifices are given and the meat is boiled, just like it is in our story this morning. The peace offering is a sacrifice made in response to an event in a person's life. It was a public profession of thanksgiving to God. And the idea seems to be that it's a celebration of an event where the shalom of God is particularly experienced. That it was a meal that celebrated an occasion when the blessings of God and the longed-for harmony between God and humans and creation are partially experienced here and now in the world. And it was an opportunity then to celebrate around a table with the priest and with God and to celebrate what God had done, is doing, and the shalom that God will bring into the world. What if that's what Elisha was doing? What if he isn't just burning the boats so that there's no way for him to go back? But what if he was also celebrating with his community what God was doing? What if in the call of God upon his life, he'd seen something of the shalom of God breaking into the world and his own calling to take part in it? That he'd seen a glimpse of God's plan he had encountered in the invitation to follow Elijah, the living God who'd placed a claim on his life. And so he gathers the community to celebrate to give thanks to God for the gift of that call and to mark it publicly with a lavish feast. 
and to hope in doing so toward the day when all of God's promises would be realized, when God would reconcile and restore everything, and when God's plans would be complete. And isn't that what we gather to do here? As we come to Christ's table, Christ gathers us to celebrate this feast of love. Jesus offers himself as the sacrifice that's consumed and covers our sin, but it's also a sacrifice in which we're invited to join the feast. Jesus gives us his body and blood to eat, to give thanks for what God has done. Eucharist means thanksgiving. We come to this feast to celebrate the call of God that's placed on our lives too, to praise God for this glimpse we've been given of God's plan in Jesus and rejoice that we're drafted into his service. And as we celebrate, we lean forward into God's future, a future we've seen already in Jesus, toward the future of God's shalom, toward which every feast leans. So before we go to barbecue tables later today, let's come to this table. Let's join Jesus for this peace offering. Let's come and give thanks for all Christ has done, is doing, and will do. Amen? And as we make our way there, let's stand to join our voices to Christians throughout the ages in proclaiming what Christians believe in the words of the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who is conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. He, he rose again. He ascended into heaven, and he is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. You can be seated. As you do so, begin to ready your communion elements. And if you didn't bring any with you, there are still a few more over in the welcome tent. You can grab some juice and some crackers there so you can join us. as we said, this feast is a feast of remembrance, communion, and hope. We come to remember all that God has done in Jesus Christ, how Jesus offered his life on the cross for us and for our sins as the perfect sacrifice to reconcile the world to himself. We come to remember this. We also come to have communion with this same Lord Jesus Christ who promises to be with us always, even to the end of the age, who makes himself known to us in the bread as the true heavenly bread that strengthens us to life eternal, and in the cup as the true vine in whom we must abide to bear good fruit. We come to have communion with Jesus, to be joined together to him and to one another as his body. And we come to hope, believing that this meal is just a pledge and foretaste of the feast of love that we will celebrate when his kingdom fully comes. 
With unveiled faces we behold Him, may like Him in glory, and celebrate around the great banquet table of heaven a feast for all the ages. We come to remember, to have communion, and to hope. Let's pray together. Lord, holy and right it is in our joyful duty to give thanks to you at all times and in all places. O Lord, almighty, everlasting God, for you've created the heavens with all their hosts and the earth with all its plenty. You've given us life and being and you preserve us by your providence, but you have shown us the fullness of your love by sending into the world your Son, Jesus Christ, the Word made flesh for us and for our salvation, and for the precious gift of this mighty Savior who has reconciled us to you, we worship and adore your holy and glorious name. Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, heaven and earth are full of your glory. Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the Lord, name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Lord, we remember in this supper the perfect sacrifice offered once on the cross for the sin of the whole world. And so, Lord, in, joy, in the joy of Jesus' resurrection and in the expectation of his coming again, we offer ourselves to you as holy and living sacrifices. And we proclaim the mystery of our faith that Christ has died, Christ is risen, and Christ will come again. So, Lord, send your Holy Spirit upon us, we pray, that the bread we break may be the communion of the body of Christ, and the cup of blessing for which we bless God may be the communion of the blood of Christ, and grant that we may grow up in all things into Christ who is our Lord, and that as these grains were gathered from many fields into one loaf, and these grapes from many hills into one cup, grant, O Lord, that your whole church may soon be gathered from the ends of the earth into your kingdom. Even so, come and come soon, Lord Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen. As we remember the story of the Last Supper, I'll invite you to do these actions with me. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread. And when he had given thanks for it, he broke it. And he gave it to them, saying, Take and eat. This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also after they'd eaten, he took the cup and said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink of it in remembrance of me. The bread we break and the cup we bless are the communion of the body and the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. These are the gifts of God for the people of God. This is Christ's table, and he welcomes to it all who are trusting in him for their salvation. So eat heartily and drink deeply the body and blood of Jesus Christ.
Let's give thanks to God and pray. Bless the Lord, O my soul, the psalmist says, and all that is within me. Bless God's holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and do not forget all God's benefits, who forgives all your sins, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit and crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who renews your strength that you may mount up with wings as eagles. Bless the Lord, O my soul. So Lord, we do bless you as we gather at this table to remember the way in which you have forgiven our sins through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, that you have come to restore and redeem us, that you have given your life for ours that we may be made whole, that you have given us life eternal and everlasting, redeeming us from the pit, and that you have crowned us with steadfast love and mercy, that we, Lord, in being called to follow you, will one day sit on thrones beside you, made like you in glory when heaven and earth are brought together one day. Lord, we bless you, and all that is within us blesses your holy name. So, Lord, as we gather around this table, we pray that you would continue to be faithful to these promises, that you would forgive our sins and give us, Lord, a deeper and deeper understanding of our sin and brokenness, that we may know and trust your grace more and more each day. Lord, come and heal all of our diseases. Come and restore and renew us. Come and set us free from everything that binds and holds us. Lord, each of us have prayers that we can fill in the blank here for ourselves and for those we love. So Lord, be faithful And Lord, lift us up and redeem us. As we mourn the death of our loved ones, remind us of the hope we have in you. As we look forward to death ourselves, may we not despair, but come to trust in the resurrection of the dead. Lord, make it real to us every time we see the water poured into the font and remember we've already died in you. Make it real as we come to this table and are joined together to your living flesh. And Lord, be faithful to your promise to bring your kingdom, not just here, but to the ends of the earth. Join us together with Christians from every tribe and nation and language and people. And Father, let your kingdom come. Bring an end to all suffering and all need and all brokenness. Lord, come in fullness with your kingdom. Bring heaven to earth that we may dwell in the new Jerusalem that we see in Revelation coming down from heaven adorned as a bride for her husband, that we may live with you forever and always. Lord, be faithful to the promises that you've made visible here at this table and make them real in us as we step out in faith to follow and live into them. So Lord, do all of this and more as we lift up our voices in the prayer you taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, 
but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever.